when you finish a book it's like you've given birth to some being which which has a life of its own because i take the book not as a sort of static thing but it's a it's the culmination of a lot of research lot of thought to launch a movement the book is a toolkit think of it like this is a hindu toolkit to help us cope with the situate the kurukshetra that exists so the the reception we got in india from this book is that the general public says we must put pressure on our billionaires to stop doing this kind of funding because if the if you look at chinese funding chinese funding is far more at harvard than indian funding and chinese funding always came with a with this caveat that you will not insult our country so the chinese funding is not being used to support the tibetan freedom or the uyghur issue no mention of that they don't talk about this hong kong or this taiwan issue i am a student at harvard university and uh, i am a civil servant in india basically in indian police service and here for one year course everything you spoke deeply resonates with me deeply resonates so there are three stages at the selection stage those who write against india they are given priority in selection yes so half of the people from private sector from ngo sector who have come to harvard have written against india in their essay anybody who gets scholarship has to be necessarily anti india yes because unless you write that you have a richer life in india you are not going to get scholarship it's not on merit good evening ladies and gentlemen thank you very much for being here my name is mukta munjal along with my beautiful co-host jyoti singh we welcome you on behalf of federations of india uh, new england and i would like to welcome you all wholeheartedly to the book launch of the much talked about book snakes in the ganga uh, written by raji malhotra ji he is here in the audience here we will start the ceremony by playing national anthem of both the countries i would request everyone to please stand up
We will now go into the book launch ceremony, uh, the main occasion that we are here for. Raji Malhotra was trained initially as a physicist and then as a computer scientist specializing in AI in the 1970s. After a successful corporate career in the US, he became an entrepreneur and, a, and ran several IT companies in 20 countries. Since the early 1990s, as the founder of his nonprofit Infinity Foundation, which is settled in Princeton, USA, he has been researching civilizations and their engagement with technology from historical, social sciences, and mind sciences perspective. Wow, what an accomplishment. Since then, he has authored several best-selling books. Infinity Foundation has also published a 14-volume series on the history of Indian science and technology. He has authored eight books. He is also the chair of Governing Board of Center of Indic Studies. And he will talk about the books, and I'm sure you will enjoy it. So I think, yeah, thank you very much, everyone, for coming here on behalf of Federation of Indian Association. As a, thank you very much. As you say, we all the young generation is taking the support of our elder generation who is give, blessing us directly in many, many terms, in terms of wisdom, in terms of books, all these things. Experience, this is the most important thing which we need. Even though we are, are very, very skilled, but still we, we, we need the blessings and experience from our elders and this is the one single goal of FIA that to just go and honor our seniors because they are the fortunate enough they have provided us enough in 
education they make us make us eligible so that we came here to serve this country as well as our motherland so once again thank you very much and this is the opening of this book please utilize it thank you i think uh, abhishek ji has done a remarkable job under his leadership i am very moved and very touched i didn't expect such a wonderful uh, audience and such a warm uh, reception so i'm looking forward to this event and would love to share with you about this book namaste congratulations rajiv for making this book i know i i know rajiv for very long time and he always you know when you read the book you will find and of course you will hear from him something that is out of uh, normal thinking you know he is a he is a person who pushes the envelope i'm so happy that on this day i mean rajiv is here and i mean we all uh, love and respect him for all that he's doing for our community and for the world at large it's amazing the work that he's done namaste first of all thanks for inviting me here to do this book launch so this is a very uh, exciting time for any author when you finish a book it's like you've given birth to some being which which has a life of its own because i take the book not as a sort of static thing but it's a it's the culmination of a lot of research lot of thought to launch a movement the book is a toolkit think of it like this is a hindu toolkit to help us cope with the situate the kurukshetra that exists now a lot of um, when i first started this kind of work 30 years ago it was difficult to get people our people interested because either they would say there's no problem they didn't want to deal with it is the reality or they were afraid to deal with it or they would say that it's uh, controversial we don't want to touch we don't want to talk about this i remember in the first many years it was difficult to get uh, permission to give a talk at a temple hindu temple because they would say this so uh, we don't want to talk we'll talk about upanishad and gita and things like that and do some puja but this is uh, controversial we don't get in we don't talk about issues and conflicts and so on so you know how you the language you use to explain yourself makes a big difference so i decided i started talking to the mandir people saying that this is the new kurukshetra and uh, both ramchandra ji sri ramchandra and also sri krishna ji they came to fight battles they did not come for any, their, their role model is that there are issues we have to confront them we have to deal with them how to be a kshatriya that is who they were they, how how they were training us so in this age we have to also part of the dharma is to be kshatriyas in the intellectual sense it's not a physical war that we are fighting but we have to fight the intellectual battle of narrative the grand narrative of india is at threat we have to fight the grand narrative of our civilization so then they started understanding that yeah okay you know we can't deny that uh, if if issues were not important to solve and confront if our tradition did not say that you have to go and sort out issues also then you know the whole itihas is meaningless because the itihas is about physical world the reality out there it is not about either doing your own private yoga which is important i know or your own meditation which is also very important or your own private puja which is also important but it is it has to do with social political issues confronting society so this is one way to explain 
The other thing that I would often come across is why are you talking about others? We should talk about ourselves. We are so great. Vasudeva, Kutumbakam, things like that. And so again, I had to come up with some term from our own culture. And the term is Purva Paksha. Purva Paksha is something that Adi Shankaracharya popularized. He did great Purva Paksha, which means you study the opposing, opposing side and you study them very carefully with respect, take them very seriously and understand who they are, what they are doing, what their thought process is, what, what are their strengths, weaknesses, arguments, and then you give a response. So I'm doing Purva Paksha in the Kurukshetra of the forces that we need to deal with. So then they started saying, okay, yeah, we can't deny Purva Paksha. So this way you have to gradually uh, become uh, somebody that people take uh, seriously that what he's talking about is relevant and it is not just something that we can avoid. So becoming non-ignorable also has the challenge that you also get attacked because e either it's, if you are writing something, doing something and you're ignored, then you don't have to worry about it. But if you're non-ignorable, which is important to bring change, then you also are going to face attack. So you have to be courageous. And this means that before you put out something, you have to be so sure. Your research has to be so solid that uh, you have to be able to defend against the big forces. I've never taken on, taken on a book project where I was going after minor forces. Uh, whoever I took on in each of my books were the top tier forces. So in this book, the top, top level force is Harvard University. And half the book is about, is a criticism of Harvard University. Now you, it's very interesting. In the United States, you have books written criticizing anybody and everybody, whether it's a president, there's no president that hasn't been criticized, whether it is some big businessman, whether it's Bill Gates or whoever it is. There are always uh, critics, which is part of democracy, but part of free thought. But there is no such work which is doing a critique of Harvard University for such a long time it has been around. And given its power and its clout, it is quite amazing how much they have controlled the narrative in such a way that there is no criticism of it. So this book is a critique of uh, Harvard University from an Indian Hindu lens. Uh, basically, how they've been studying us, how they've been representing us, how they've been misrepresenting us. And it is not based on just cut paste, but I've had a 30 year experience. I have a whole chapter on my 30 years of encounters at Harvard. Uh, we, uh, first as a donor, philanthropist, giving them chairs, academic chairs, funding their conferences, funding many projects, and then gradually understanding what they're up to, giving responses to them. And then from there, it turned into more and more serious scholarship to critique them. So now this book, just to come to what this book is about. Earlier, I wrote a book called Breaking India. And now this is Breaking India 2.0. So the first question is why, what has changed? What has changed is that in the Breaking India 1.0, the forces that were the Breaking India forces were targeting the grassroots of India, the poor peasants, the poor villagers, uh, either converting them or turning them into Maoists or something like that, putting divisive thoughts in them, Breaking India in that way from the bottom up. And now the Breaking India 2.0 are targeting the elites of India. They're targeting the rich, sophisticated families, businessmen, industrialists, 
you know, government people who send their children to places like Harvard or Ivy Leagues or in India, places like Ashoka University, which calls itself the Harvard of India, or Kriya University, or and many of these very elite universities where the tuitions are very high. And naturally, these are people from very good families. They're also targeting the government, government of India, administrative officers. They're targeting industrialists, big industrial houses. They're targeting media, uh, scholars. So this Breaking India 2.0 is a top-down attack on India, not a bottom-up like the previous one. That's a very big difference. Another difference is the use of technology. Now the technology, the whole big data, artificial intelligence, uh, using social media to manipulate people, build their psychological profile, etc., is very new compared to uh, what was going on uh, in, the, in uh, Breaking India 1.0. So the Breaking India, you might say, well, what way are they breaking India? Is, is it, uh, it is not a physical uh, physical breaking, but uh, the narrative and the mind, the psychology, the uh, sense of identity uh, being attacked and being being broken. So there is the, the the new the new ideology, the new ideology which is uh, discussed in uh, part one of the book. Uh, it, it talks about the break the importance. This ideology says that the Hindu family system should be broken. That is their proposal. The Hindu family system should be broken because it pr propagates uh, an abusive uh, narrative from one generation to the next. So the very thing that we treasure, that we cherish, has to be broken. And the vehicle that is the conduit transmitting it, the family system, should be broken. So this uh, is quite a serious thing for us. Uh, the, the, the whole uh, system of uh, tradition, Vedic structures have to be broken. Uh, the, the nation state, uh, its, uh, its, its constitution, its uh, fundamental structures, the democratic process, the, uh, India is a sham democracy, in, let's say India is, a, India is a fascist state, all of this stuff is coming out of this, uh, this particular ideology. And then there is an attack on IITs. There is recently a, a whole book from Harvard which attacks IITs, which says that IITs are propagating casteism and they're promoting Brahminism and they're suppressing Dalits, which is, of course, all not true. And uh, therefore, this casteism uh, uh, is what is being brought by the Indian tech workers into Silicon Valley. And therefore, there are people suing, like there's a lawsuit against Cisco already, which says that Cisco is biased against Dalits. And, and, and all this, this whole theory says that the Dalits are the blacks of India and the non-Dalits are the whites of India and caste is a form of racism. And so this whole uh, divisiveness in India is being now brought into this country to target you people, all of you, us. So now there are laws, there are policies in some uh, big companies, HR, HR policies that say that caste has to, there has to be a survey of caste of in Indians there, which is very strange. They're only picking on Indians to do that. Some universities, starting with Harvard, have made a policy that uh, caste will be treated as race, same way. If there's a complaint on caste, it will be treated as racism and the race laws will be applied, which is quite serious. So it seems that just being an Indian, you can be suspect. You can be, you can be suspect there's something wrong about you because you're bringing this very backward, uh, you know, social thought into this country and spoiling the life in this country because you are, you are uh, uh, from a certain caste hierarchy. Whether you are or not, that is the narrative. So this is also, this whole theory of wokeism, 
which uh, has taken on the progressive left-wing, it's not liberalism in its best, uh, but liberalism gone too far, uh, the left-wing gone too far, which is now, they are now calling themselves progressives. So this progressivism, uh, or wokeism as it's called, is, is attacking uh, things like, uh, you know, uh, things like um, uh, the, the free speech, so what we we call free speech, we're very proud of free speech, but there is this theory of called cancel culture, which says that those who are elitists, who are oppressors, uh, their free speech should be denied, so you can be canceled. A lot of us get canceled uh, for no reason, uh, because they don't like us. They don't want to accept our point of view, so we are canceled. And this is uh, a contradiction with the principles that they preach of principles of free speech and debate and listening to all points of view. That's good theoretically, but in practice, it's not being applied. So if you want to ask what is it doing, what's going on, so let me give you in two, three minutes uh, what is uh, 200 years of history of this thought. Uh, Marxism starts this idea that there are oppressors and oppressed. Every society you can divide between those who are oppressed and those who are the oppressors. It used to be economic. That was how Marxism defi defined these two categories. And then it became race uh, when they applied it to the United States. This became critical race theory. So then blacks are the oppressed and whites are the oppressors. And then it became extended to uh, LGBTQ are oppressed. The people who are not are oppressors. Uh, men are oppressors, women are oppressed, and Muslims are oppressed. Uh, Christian, Judeo-Christian are oppressors. All this happened. And now it's become applied to India. And this is called critical caste theory. And according to that, you know, the, the Dalits are the oppressed and the minority religions are the oppressed and so on and so forth. So the ideology is to take all those who are, have grievances, who are considered oppressed and club them and educate them to rise against the oppressors, which means the whole nation state and the traditional traditions, uh, the family life, uh, all of that. And so this is the Breaking India 2.0, which is now going on. And most of you see examples of some conference on dismantling Hindua, Hindutva or Hinduism, or you see some uh, in England, there's a riot against us and or in Canada or somewhere. And you wonder why is it happening? Who's doing it? So this book gives you an, an explanation where it's coming from. What is the theory based on which these kind of things are coming? And that's the first part of the book. The second part of the book is that this is happening at Harvard. It's happening in many places, but we pick Harvard because that's the main center. And it is happening in Harvard with the funding of Indian billionaires. Uh, there is a Harvard center called um, Mahindra Humanities Center, which is headed by somebody who's a world-famous postmodernist. And uh, his theory is about deconstructing India, deconstructing India's legitimacy. He's written about this for decades. Uh, then there is a Lakshmi Mittal and Family South Asia Institute, uh, which, uh, which basically is a center where a whole lot of this kind of uh, anti-India people are invited and they give talks. And, but there's no contrarian view. There's nothing wrong with inviting people and having speech that is negative towards you. You have to accept it. But you should be given a chance to have an opposing point of view also. Students should hear both points of view. They should not hear only one point of view. They should also hear another point of view. So the, we, the analysis we have done shows that they do not invite people that will disagree with the established ideology that they are promoting. 
and the Indian billionaires, for whatever reason, are funding all this. And so we are pointing it out, and we want to have them. We want to have discussions with them, and invite them to tell us why they are doing all this, because they are also considered very patriotic people back home. But while back home they are very patriotic and so forth, and making their billions in in the Indian economy, why would they be funding things here which are the opposite? So it would be nice to know. And then part three is how this ideology, which has been baked here, uh, goes back to India and uh, how it is spread through various institutional mechanisms. This is uh, th these are the three parts of the book. Now I want to, you to know that uh, the book looks very big, and so you may be scared. But I'll tell you how you can read it in about three hours, three four hours, three hours. A uh, hundred pages is all you need to read. The first. The introduction is about 40 pages. You should read that. And then every chapter, there are 22 chapters, starts with a one-page overview. It's kind of an executive overview or summary of what that chapter contains. And if you read that one page and you just think about it, you will get the idea of the whole chapter. What are the major points being made? And then there is a conclusion. So if you read introduction, conclusion, and in between, you read the one one chapter. Uh, in about 100 pages, you will have read the book. Now, you will know everything that the book is saying, except you will not have the evidence to prove it, which is what the details are about. So if you want to know about how the attack on IITs from Harvard, then you read chapter 4. You don't have to read anything else, just chapter 4 is enough. If you want to read about uh, uh, the lawsuits in California, uh, you read chapter 2, or chapter 3. Uh, like that. So if you want to read what is Mahindra doing, Mahindra Center doing at Harvard, there is one chapter on that. If you want to read what is Piramal doing in public health in Harvard, why that's an issue with, for us, there is a certain chapter on that. So every topic, every issue that we've raised is separate chapter. And, and you don't have to read them in sequence. Uh, you don't have to read uh, all the chapters. Uh, you, you just read one chapter here, one chapter there, and it is enough. So basically what I suggest you do is read the introduction, read the overviews, and then go d deeper wherever you want to, wherever you feel like it. And that's what the, how the book is organized. The reason for putting all the evidence and all the data in one book is so that if it's a manual for fighting, if you want to get up and be an intellectual kshatriya and argue on one of these points, you, you can look at the overview and it will tell you what are the main points, what are the talking points. But then if you get into a deep discussion and you need backup, the backup is there. The backup is right there. So this is, this is how the book has been organized. So you can have a very simple approach to it and you can also have a very deep scholarly approach to it written in the, in the same, same book. So I'm, uh, uh, I, I would love to take uh, questions. It's, uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, information uh, that uh, is being conveyed in this book. Uh, I, I intend to, we also intend to produce small books in Hindi, 100 page books, one on attack on IITs, one on the history of Varna Jati caste, one on what are these billionaires doing, things like that, each issue being raised is uh, going to become a small booklet, paperback in Hindi. That will take us, you know, several months to put together. We're also going to do some documentaries on each of the points being raised. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, since much of the content discusses Harvard, uh, we're going to be coming to the Boston area with our camera crew 
and do some filming right here. And tomorrow, of course, I have a discussion at Harvard Club with a very prominent Harvard professor, which I'm really looking forward to. So, so this is a very above board, a very honest discussion with the world's premier institution, uh, not in a confrontational way, but in a critical way, saying, you know, you guys are known for criticizing the whole world and uh, criticizing our culture and our heritage and our government. Well, we would like to talk back at you. And we are inviting uh, open discussions and open debates. That's the spirit with which, uh, in a very civil way, in a very respectful tone, we want to take on, take on this battle because we've done some serious homework and we've reached some very serious conclusions, uh, which we want to put on the, which we are putting on the table. And with your help, we need your help to move this forward. So how you can help? You can, you can get the book. Even go to Amazon and just put a one-line one line review. It helps a lot because the algorithms look at all this and it drives. We want, once the book is known to be successful, already it has got a lot of traction. Once it is known to be successful, it's taken more seriously. Then the Harvards of the world cannot ignore it. Then they have to discuss it. They have to have a conversation, which is important. So the popularity of this movement depends on support on popular support. We put in all our effort, tan man dhan for 30 years, that's what I've done. And uh, it's up to you. Uh, you know, at this age, I continue working. I have no plans to stop. And uh, thanks to people like you, people like FIA, people like Abhishek and the others, that encouragement and that love is what keeps me going. So I will stop and uh, be more than happy to take any questions. Thank you and Jai Hind. trained uh, neuroradiologist, but uh, this should not matter because it wasn't a liberal arts. The American system is based on Adam Smith, Frederick Hyatt, Milton Friedman um, philosophy, which is antithetical to the Karl Marx philosophy, and that is functioning even now. So that's one item. And then the other item is that we are living in the current climate of white supremacy. And in that, um, the white race is deemed by those people as superior to the non-whites, irrespective of their caste and origin. Now, we as the non-white people living here and even voting today are going to be facing that depending on the outcome of the election. And in that issue, the uh, so-called so socialists uh, are the ones who are going to be fighting this white supremacy. And the people who are in power have the power, the wealth, the resources, whereas the people who are like us, non-white, brown people and black people, we will have to get together, we will have to pool our resources together to counter that. And isn't that what's happening in India? I am just playing devil's advocate. I am so not trying to disagree a, with can you. Can we have a question? Can I answer the question? Sure. We are sandwiched between being people of color and oppressed on one hand. 
which is the point you make, that as people of color, we also want to fight white supremacy. But guess what? Critical caste theory says that we are the oppressor. We are the oppressor, and the Dalits are the oppressed. They are the blacks. And if you are not a Dalit, if you are non-Dalit, then you are white. It's called white adjacency, which means you're adjacent to the whites because you occupy a similar place in India. So in India, maybe what is happening, and they have their own quota system, they have their own debates, they have their own solutions. But now the charge is being made that we have come to this country, and if I was born a non-Dalit, I am a white adjacent, I am the oppressor. I don't accept that. I don't know about you, but I don't accept that. So the, the, the interesting thing is, helped Black Lives Matter people. I funded them, my foundation helped them. Uh, I still have a lot of black friends and I work with them. However, when critical race theory is applied to Indian culture, and I want you to note that, when it is applied to Indian culture and the mapping is made that Indian society, from because of Vedic hierarchy, they're saying, well, the Vedas are the oppressor, and this is very clearly mentioned, Vedic structure is, is the hierarchy, hierarchy of oppression and supremacy, and this is therefore the whole dismantling of Hindutva comes out of this logic. The, the whole logic of let's dismantle Hindutva comes from this premise that critical race theory when you apply it to India becomes critical caste theory and, and caste is inherently abusive from the Vedic times which is not true because Varna Jati were different than caste. Caste has become abusive recently but it was not the same as Varna Jati in the past. So there's a lot of fallacies in the history that has been given as a result of which my entire culture, civilization is delegitimized as supremacist. And this is why you hear terms like, you know, Modi is a fascist. And you hear terms like, uh, uh, you know, the, these are Hindu chauvinists and uh, supremacists. These terms, supremacy, fascist, dismantling, are not accidental. They have a certain origin, and that is what our book is pointing out. So I'm very glad because it is exactly discussions like this which will help us bring out more. And I would like to have Harvard people sit in, because I've quoted them a lot, I would love to sit with them and talk, and there's no reason to cancel each other. So I'm glad, I hope that your influence can get some of them to the discussion table. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rajivji. Due to time constraint, we are going to have one more question. That question has come from Srinivasji, uh, and his question is, uh, Srinivasji, if you can stand up, I can recite your question. So he asked, many Indians living in America, common men, while doing great at their jobs, are basically English educated and English thinking. They are very susceptible to brainwashing by English medium, leftist media. Uh, so most of them innocently work towards destruction of Indic civilization, or like you said, breaking India or even America for that matter. How do we bring them out of this darkness and lies? Or is this brainwashing too deep-rooted that they will never see the daylight? Is this generation a lost cause? Better luck with younger generation. So, wonderful question. As a Kshatriya, I never believed that there is a lost cause. I never believed till the last ball is played in the game. I don't believe the game is over. I will not uh, concede that our culture has lost because, yes, we are down, but we are not out. We also have a history of fighting back and winning. So. Let's discuss what we can do about it. First of all, taking, taking note of the problem is a very important first step. You have to 
accept the problem as a very serious problem and not assume that it's not so serious and we'll be okay. Uh, it's, you can't just deny the problem, it's very serious. It is not only English language. Uh, it is, uh, you know, now the, the, re the area, people living in the villages are mimicking the urbanites. Uh, 25 years ago, when I used to go to in, uh, my mother's house in uh, Delhi, the driver and his children, uh, I would sit, bring stuff for them and sit and talk to them and we would talk in Hindi. And uh, I would say namaste and they would say namaste. Now, ten, for, since the last 10 years, I, same family, uh, they told my mother that uh, we want the daughter to go to a school where she'll wear a western dress because she will not become maid, she will become a memsab. This, they, 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 this is their thinking. I'm talking about the servants from a poor village in Bihar. So now, when I go and uh, talk to them in Hindi, uh, he says, uh, English mein jawab do. And if I say namaste, he says, good morning, bolo. So they're more conscious that we want to become like the Sahabs of Delhi. This is, a, this is how the colonization that, you know, we, we know about colonization from the West to the elites in India, the English speaking. But now the elites in India, thanks to media, social media, uh, the role models from Bollywood, the role models that they all look up to, uh, you know, are westernized Indians. So the, now the villager wants to, the kid wants to become like that. Uh, this is an intergenerational problem. Uh, Sometimes you will find when you go to the village, and I do a lot of research in the hinterlands in India, you will find that the older people are still traditional, but the younger generation are so much into this hip-hop and looking at the fashions of the Delhi and all that, the hairstyle, all of that. So I don't think you can say anymore that the problem is limited to English language. The problem is now gone viral. So what to do about it? What to do about it? Different... The, the, the disease has so many parts to it, you, each one requires its own solution. The disease discussed in this book is the disease of elitist Indians funding our self-destruction. That's the one point. That they are, there is no reason for these billionaires to be funding thought, uh, think tanks like Harvard and various others. There's also other places, Brown University and Yale and Stanford has got a lot of this also, and I'm going to Stanford, I'm going to have a debate at Stanford, uh, there's a policy institute, and I'm going to talk about what's happening at Stanford. So, the, the, that also is funded by Ambani. The Ambani, it's called the Reliance Dhirubhai Ambani Professor, and he's one of the worst anti-India, anti-Hindu professors anywhere in the world, has a long history of that. I'm going to read it out and say, you guys in Stanford, Let's have a discussion on this, and Ambani is funding it. So the, the main point I've raised here is that the elites of India are funding the self-destruction of India, and they have no reason to do so. Unless they, of course, it'll help them get their kid into the Harvard, it will help them get some business deal, it will make them very famous, they'll have a building name after them, they'll sit on a board next to Bill Gates, all this prestige they're craving to become like the white man, so, but that is shallow. That is what we are calling out. So the, the reception we got in India from this book is that the general public says we must put pressure on our billionaires to stop doing this kind of funding. Because if, the, if you look at Chinese funding, Chinese funding is far more at Harvard than Indian funding. And Chinese funding always came with, a, with this caveat that you will not insult our country. So the Chinese funding is not being used to support the Tibetan freedom or the Uyghur issue. No, 
mention of that. They don't talk about this Hong Kong or this Taiwan issue because China says that you stay out of that. We talk about STEM. We talk about STEM education, science, technology, computer science, you know, engineering, medicine. Let's talk about that kind of knowledge because we benefit from it. We're not interested in Harvard telling us about our history or telling us about our politics or telling about, about our society. And so they, the funding, the billionaires of China are aligned with the national cause and the billionaires of India are not. And this is also the Indian government hasn't bothered to get people aligned. So everybody's out funding their own, whatever, whatever suits them. And this is a strategic area which with the Indian government is definitely going to take a look at because they've already told me. They want to take a look at it. They want to talk to the billionaires and see why are they doing all this. And this can bring about a lot of change because Harvard does not want to lose its reputation. That's the one thing it has. And if, if, it's ever, if it ever leaks out that the Indian billionaires might get out of there, might close their chairs, it will be a big slap on the face. They don't want that. So how, why can't we change them into things about India that are positive? I can, I can give you a one-day workshop on what all is positive about India, which they don't talk about. I, I have a whole chapter in this tech talking about the things that Harvard refuses to teach and refuses to discuss in their curriculum concerning India, because those are positive things. Those are contra contrarian views to what they are talking about. In fact, Harvard itself has benefited from Indian influence. I talk about T.S. Eliot, who was a big figure in Harvard, and how he was a Sanskrit scholar, and how he himself acknowledged that his best poems were basically translations from the Upanishads. He himself acknowledged that there are books written about it, but Harvard doesn't want to acknowledge it. And then some people like Emerson, a major figure at Harvard, called one, one of the Boston Brahmins, you know, these people were called Boston Brahmins because they were so inspired by India and they were among the founders, the early great figures at Harvard. And such figures are no longer, their, their debt to India is no longer talked about. Harvard should be respectful uh, of the Indian uh, sources. And all the way to recent times, I have a whole lot written about neuroscience and the use of Indian meditation and uh, the research on Ayurveda going on at, at Harvard without proper acknowledgement. And I think this is an area that my friend knows a lot about, and I have to talk to him about it too one day, because he's part of this in a sense. Harvard is appropriating a whole lot of Indian knowledge without acknowledgement. Where India is good, they will claim it and say, Hamara hai. We are, we are harap kar lenge. I call it digestion. Digesting Indian knowledge without acknowledgement and mapping it to fake Western sources, fake Western sources when in authentically it ought to be mapped to Indian sources. Yeah? When the vichardhara, the knowledge has flown from Vedas all the way to modern times, and it is of use, they are taking it and, and changing its history, manipulating the history to make it look like it had nothing to do with India. So I consider this to be a one-sided sham that when you want to criticize, you criticize when it is time to, uh, why wouldn't they do that to uh, the history of, uh, history of thought that came from Greece. Greek thought came to the West and it is all praised. Greek thought is very respected. The thoughts that came from the Bible areas, the thoughts that came from Europe are all respected. But the thoughts that came from India are not because the, the, only the negative things are talked about. This is the problem I'm having. And so our billionaires have to stop this. Thank you, Rajivji. I'm a student at Howard University, and uh, 
I'm a civil servant in India, basically in Indian police service, and here for one year course. Everything you spoke deeply resonates with me, deeply resonates. So there are three stages. At the selection stage, those who write against India, they are given priority in selection. Yes. So half of the people from private sector, from NGO sector, who have come to Harvard have written against India in their essay. Anybody who gets scholarship has to be necessarily anti-India. Yes. Because unless you write that you have a wretched life in India, you are not going to get scholarship. It's not on merit, generally. Third, in classrooms, if you, sp if you speak in favor of India, you are not given that much space. Nobody stops you from speaking in favor of India. But you speak against India, you get that much more space. You are applauded. And those who speak in favor of India, they are not cancelled. But certainly they feel out of place in those spaces. Very good. Thank you. And fourth thing, it is essentially a design. I, I was speaking to some US friends who are from US government. If they talk about caste, caste has been recognized as one of the discriminations last year by Harvard University. Yes. It's for the, they had no business to recognize it. But three, four Indians who are studying there, they fought for it, they got it included. What will happen in near future? Caste will be used as a measure of India's assessment by a state department as they are doing with religion as of now. Yes. So this is the gradual progression. First, talk in universities, take it to think tanks, take it to Congress, Senate, and then get it accepted at government level. Mm. So at a time, maybe 20 years from now, maybe US government will ask India about caste issues. Five years from now. Five, five, years, five from years from now. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I will end here by saying this last line. It's not the fault of Howard. The Indians who come here including civil servants. I'm ashamed of being here from that community because two, three civil servants are also talking the language. And my father, who was proud of my coming to Harvard, when he got to know that I'm coming for this book release function, and he has read this book, he told me, you should cry that you went to a wrong place. <laughs> <laughs> this is what is the reputation. And your book is a hit. We are talking about it every day our student community and everybody, and I'm sure we all will be there tomorrow to welcome you. Thank you, sir. Thank you. So this is why I wrote the book. This is exactly because of people like you. I'm, I'm, I'm very honored that you are reading it, and there is a community of interest because it's not even been out for 45 days, but it's really gaining, gaining momentum. So I agree with everything you are saying, but I think that the events are happening faster than you've mentioned. The, the critical caste theory and, uh, and its affiliated causes have infiltrated policy making in India right now. The policy think tank, Niti Aayog, has Harvard people on the advisory board who are bringing these thoughts into Indian policy making. It has entered Indian theories of social justice and human rights. It has entered the corporate world of ESG, environment, social justice, governance, 
ESG is a World Economic Forum project to measure index of corporate behavior. So just like, you know, all of you know, have heard of, China has this system of measuring, uh, you know, social merit. The, how, the, how each individual is measured through artificial intelligence and through big data and his behavior on social media. He's given score for everything good he does for the country, every negative score for what he does wrong, whether his views are good or bad, it's all recorded and profiled. So this is a, this is a individual profiling system and scoring system based on which he will get his privileges, whether he gets admitted, whether he gets to a good hospital if he needs it. All of that is decided, the, the country's allocation of, of priorities and resources depends on your score. So you have to be a good citizen, which means well-behaved. And everybody is criticizing that this is anti-democracy. But in the United States, in World Economic Forum, Harvard Kennedy School are doing a similar thing for the corporate world called ESG. They're scoring companies based on their performance. And who gets to decide the performance? There are big five consulting companies that are all American. Deloitte & Touche, uh, Pricewaterhouse, Ernst & Young, uh, McKinsey, these kind of people. And they've come up with a system of what constitutes good social justice according to their criteria. It is not according to non-Western criteria. China says, hell no, we don't want all this nonsense. We don't, we don't want your judging our people, we judge ourselves. But Indians are very full of this. Indians want to be very Harvard compliant. Harvard Tappa is very prestigious. Harvard So this inferiority complex, we are suck, we're getting sucked into these systems of measuring us, which the measuring is done by somebody else's criteria of what is good, what is bad. So for instance, when they measure environment, now they're talking about the whole nature. For us, nature is sacred. So for us, it is not a resource to be preserved for economic reasons. The reason you don't spoil the, uh, the water is not because it is bad for the fishing industry, but because the fish have rights. The fish are people, the fish are beings. So our idea of, uh, of environmental justice is based on a whole different metaphysics. It is based on a different metaphysics. So I have, I have fought, I have said, okay, uh, let's say a vegetarian says that the way you score companies, uh, if, they are, if they are into non-veg, all these meat industry, all these burger fellows and all that, uh, should be downgraded because they are against my concept of, uh, uh, of justice for, towards nature. But the scoring index that they have is not based on these premises. So whose idea, whose values, whose ideas of morality, whose ideas of ethics and dharma are, are, are being applied to measure behavior. It is not our idea. It is completely a Western idea centered from places like Harvard Kennedy School, World Economic Forum. They've come up with a grid, a template to evaluate people, whether it's individuals, whether it's companies, whether it's NGOs, whether it is governments. So even governments are going to be measured based on a criteria that has been set right here. So there are like snakes in the Ganga, there are also snakes in Charles River. <laughs> Rightly said. Thank you, Rajivji. Thank you, Amrishji. Uh, uh, regarding what uh, Rajivji just gave in the speech, um, what you have in America is basically there, is a, there are victims and there is a business of victimhood. 
So essentially, the business of victimhood that the communists and leftists, they run, they run like any other business. They recruit new people, and they actually thrive on it. They actually believe that somehow you have to recruit new one. If they don't, you have to oppress them. So it actually works counterproductive. So. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, very uh, honored to be sitting here with you, Rajivji. So a couple of uh, comments. Um, I, I don't know, the, the concept of availability cascades, and that seems to have kind of one person saying something, and then a few, and a few others uh, repeating it, and then it goes on without the people checking the veracity of what came before, and then everybody accepts that. And then in the end, we believe that, oh, that's, since so many people are saying it, it must be true. And that's somehow maybe the uh, root. If we took the time to understand what we are being told, maybe we would be out of this uh, situation. One other, one other. The other comment that I would like to make is go offbeat a little bit, but then maybe related to this is that, you know, we don't talk about uh, Ramanujan, the mathem great mathematician. And he was born in poverty. He did go to England, but then he, he died in penury. His wife was also in a, you know, she was not living uh, a luxurious life, if you go and, go and uh, take a look at it. So, so those kinds of uh, uh, stories, I, I wouldn't call them stories, histories, are not uh, brought to mainstream and that way. So, thank you. Likewise, Rajivji, really honored to be here uh, in your presence. And I know of your work, and I have actually, I, re I, re I represent Ayurveda. I'm, uh, my last name I have adopted as Ayurved, so I'm Pratibha Ayurved. And I know you have done a lot of talks on that too. In fact, I've just come back from Florida from an Ayurveda conference and I met Brahmaratna Agrawalji and we were talking about you. So my only comment is that because I represent Ayurveda in this country and I'm ex-Ayush, so I have been in the Ayush ministry back in India. What I see uh, from the Ayurveda perspective, the appropriation of our traditions and knowledge is uh, appalling. And um, it's not just at the consumer uh, level or the industry level. Unfortunately, it is also from the Government of India representatives level. Um, <laughs> I was just talking to Abheji about Ayurveda Day, which we celebrate on the occasion of Dhanteras, which is Dhanvantri Day. Um, and the CGI in New York held something, some celebration on the occasion. Not a single Vaidya was invited. Mm -hmm. It was Western doctors. To me, it does not make any sense. Absolutely. So what do we do with that mentality is my question because we can fight with outsiders. What do we do with the mentality that they have left behind inside our brains and minds? Thank you. Then, namaste. Of course, it's, it's a great honor to be with Rajiv and all follow, I've been following his work since Breaking India 1.0. So he's come on this long journey. But <clears throat> I wanted to um, say something different today. So today's event uh, was about Deepavali. It was about Rajiv's book launch, and it, about, it was about Veterans Day. 
So when, when I was coming, I saw it says Diwali. And that started to me to think, it's not Diwali, it's Deepavali. And it's Deepa Avali, which is, it's not about a single lamp. We are all Deepas in our own, own right, right? But it's about a formation of lamp. It's about an organization of lamps. And that's what Deepavali's significance is. So it's about aligning in, in the society, in the, in, the, in the Samaj, right? Only when we organize and we align our thoughts, we align our vision, we align our actions, then something happens. So the Avali is what makes it look beautiful. Otherwise, it's a bunch of people, millions and millions of people, hundreds of millions of people who gather in the kumb, but it doesn't amount to a force. So Deepavali is a huge parv. It's a big parv. It's a mahaparv because it's all about the samaj. It's about reminding us that we have to organize and align ourselves, and only when we organize and align ourselves can we fight against all the things that Rajiv is talking about. Without organizing ourselves and aligning our thoughts and vision and our actions, it's not going to happen. Thank you. So just to uh, respond, two questions. One is, why is this happening? Why are they doing this? And the second is on Ayurveda. Um, the, clash of civilizations, Huntington, Harvard man, explained the clash of civilizations as a clash of narratives which has been going on all the time for a long, long time. So this is a new kind of Kurukshetra, of narratives Kurukshetra, narrative war. You see, there is a lot of uh, threat that Indian civilization poses because some of the metaphysical assumptions are so dramatically different and provocative that it just dismantles it just dismantles the prevailing point of view. Ayurveda done honestly and genuinely will threaten the whole pharma industry. I'm telling you that. It, because the whole reliance on a single molecule controlled by a patent and then universally it is sold to everybody as if all our bodies are the same, all that gets dismantled. And if you really have an Ayurvedic society, it would not be very easy for so many trillion dollar companies and you know, billions of dollars companies to continue. So these are threatening things, you know, our civilization does threaten. If you had yoga universally and people having very high, in, uh, high uh, experiences uh, in meditation, uh, you are not going to be accepting that yeah, I'm a born sinner and I need to follow that church or that madrasa or somebody telling me because the, you feel that the knowledge, the wisdom, the answers are within, uh, you know, you feel, you realize that I, I am Satchitanand, I have that in me. I am not original sinner, I am originally divine. Satchitanand is I am originally divine, not I am an original sinner. So you see the, the, if you continue Indian philosophy and thought and tradition, and I'm not getting into religion and all that, but just as a metaphysics, as a science, uh, it leads to, uh, very difficult things for people to accept. So this is, there is a, a self-preservation reason for it. 
also there is jealousy that this is the only civilization so old, the only major civilization practiced in the world, in a major country, which is still thriving. And you know, people in Harvard probably wondering that 15 years ago we were supplying the CEOs in Silicon Valley. But now IITs is supplying more CEOs in Silicon Valley than Harvard is supplying in Silicon Valley. And so there is jealousy. I mean, who are these brown-skinned guys all of a sudden they're running this and that and that? This must be bizarre to them, you know? So, uh, that's that. Now, as far as Ayurveda is concerned, you're absolutely spot on. In fact, one of my, I have about 10, 11 volumes on digestion, history of digestion. One of them is on Ayurveda. And then it's on many other things, philosophy, linguistics, mathematics. Each of them big on topic on, and I'm going to produce all of these volumes and you know very soon one day people will say okay he really got it you know because I've been working on it for 30-40 years uh, but I want to get them right. The one on Ayurveda shows the long appropriation of Indian life sciences not just Ayurveda but agriculture, botany. The first books on botany from India one of them is at the Harvard Library Archive it's a translation from, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, one of the Indian languages. I think it's uh, 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 Malayalam, uh, into Dutch or something. One of the first books in botany, 1600s. And that's the beginning of botany in Europe. So the history of uh, appropriation is very old. Now I, thanks to my friend here, he arranged my visit and before her Benson passed away, I got to interview him. And I've been studying Herb Benson at Harvard, who Harvard, Herb Benson, who just died, and his work in Massachusetts General, and his appropriation of meditation, and his work on Ayurveda as a big figure, uh, and the, the, the work on the epigenetics. The epigenetics, uh, artificial intelligence, I am an AI person, I'm a computer scientist by background, physicist and computer scientist, and my field was artificial intelligence. Of course, in those days, it was very simple compared to today. But I understand all this. So the use of genetics and epigenetics to, uh, to study the, the effect of Ayurvedic and the effect of, you know, what happens in the certain moon cycle when you harvest and what happens when you do this mantra, when you do this. They're doing this research. Unfortunately, Indian people, are, India is not doing the research. Our knowledge is being subject to scientific validation by people within a 50 mile radius from here, within a 50 mile radius from here, getting patents, creating products as the next generation breakthrough of personalized medicine, individualized, personalized DNA specific medicine, uh, you know, the, the dosha system into uh, uh, taking the doshas into sub doshas and all that and down to the DNA level. So the, our government, and I was asked by the vice chairman of Niti Aayog, Rajiv Kumar, before he retired, he was my classmate in St. Stephen's College, to conduct some workshops on what is happening in the world and what is happening in India. And he brought Ayush head and Ames head and all these people from different government agencies into a group. And we met for eight, 10 hours a day, several times. And the, it, what came out was very pathetic that they are basically looking up to the West to give
give them guidance on their own tradition. And the, she's absolutely right, shame on the Indian government people, ministry people, Ayush people, who are looking at the West to come up with standards on Ayurveda, like standards on yoga also. And our people have lost the leadership, the Adhikar, and we are happy to give up the Adhikar to people. So as the gentleman there said, it's, you can't blame them, you have to blame ourselves. Our own people are sold out. So let's continue with more questions, please. Thank you. Thank you, Raju. I mean, I've been watching you for the last 25 years or so, and you have been at it with, just like said, Tanmandhan. Raju, for Ayurvedic perspective, he is the Nadi. So you have to do Nadi Pariksha of Raju. <laughs> what is really going on in the society? And I find in more hopeful sign. I mean, this is very important that what Raju is pointing out. He is a listening post with a blowhorn. He is not afraid of telling as it is. But India is, is historically, you know, at least historically since Alexander was winning everywhere, except when he went to India, he went down. Then there was a, Buddhism is even part of India, but it was growing and the Sankarachar comes, puts it down. Then there were this, all Arabic people came, and India is the only place where Akbar had to change Islam to call Deen-e-Ilahi. And he wasn't liked by, for, that, for doing that. It was an acceptance of defeat. When colonial powers went all over the world, East India Company was the one which was doing business in America and India and the rest of the world. It was East India Company. And India was the first major country in Boston. Yeah, they were the Boston uh, Tea Party, <laughs> was the East India Company's tea. And, and it was India which kicked them out. What I'm trying to say, there is a hopeful sign. India has this yuga cycle. So it is us who have to grow. And it is us to have to grow with the tradition to help others, not for us. This is the lesson of Indian tradition. The moment you start thinking of helping others, all the strength you grow. And that is very important. I hope that Raju is going to be able to awaken a lot of us in this process. Thank you. Thank you, Balran. Thank you so much. I'm going to speak very fast because I need to say something. Uh, this book is very thought-provoking, but I'm going to discuss only one idea which made me think very deeply. One question. Um, India is a 5,000-year-old civilization. And I was wondering, sir is mentioning about a handful of people and some institutions. Are they enough to disrupt the idea of India and disrupt the civilization ethos of India? But then the answer I found in myself was yes, because Gandhi was one person, but one idea. Modiji is one person, but one idea to see India reestablished as a Vishwaguru. Is the critical caste theory, the idea that can now pervade Indian consciousness and cause the kind of disruption which we are fearing? I think very much so, because idea is like water flowing into an empty vessel. It will occupy the entire space unless there is a counter narrative or a counter idea already there, which, which we can actually resort to when, uh, when a 
kind of threatening idea is there at our doorsteps. Uh, sir, one, just, just one more line. Um, so uh, what I, I, I want to say is what we need to do is produce a counter narrative. Uh, shutting down Harvard or shutting down all of these people are not going to shut down the ideas in the age of the internet because now ideas uh, spread at the speed of light. And if there is a vacuum in any society, and if there are fissures to exploit, then all of these agencies will continue to exploit, and there will be people in India who will be very open to accepting these ideas because we are not able to uh, offer a counter-narrative. So this, is, this was my idea. Thank you. This is true. This is absolutely true. Um, in fact, I had a discussion with uh, uh, Arnab Goswami, 45-minute interview he gave, and I was very excited, very happy about all the things he did, but disappointed at the end when he said, why should we worry about some ignorant people sitting far away uh, who are saying all this, how will it harm us? There wasn't enough time left, so I'll give you the answer now. You know, Lord, Lord uh, Macaulay was that one man sitting in England, far away, ignorant, who changed the policy against Sanskrit, brought in English, and we know what happened. Max Miller was that one man who came up with this Aryan Dravidian divide in a land far away, very ignorant, he had never come to India. And we know the whole Dravidian politics in Tamil Nadu is the result of this Aryan Dravidian divide. Even today, we can't get rid of it. Lord Risley, who came up with the caste hierarchy, previously it was Varna Jati, and started implementing it in his caste census. And today they are doing caste, they, want, they are proposing doing caste censuses in Silicon Valley. In companies where Indians work, they want to do caste censuses. It reminds me of the return of Lord Risley, because they were doing caste censuses with a preconceived idea of prejudice and, and uh, oppression. So we are the product, we are suffering what happened in the 1800s that we didn't respond to soon enough. We didn't respond to it because we were too arrogant and too confident and saying uh, we are so many thousand years old and it's Vasudeva Kutumbakam and nobody will harm us and well guess what Indian society is suffering from as a result of what the Western narratives produced about us which then got colonized and put into our own system. The same is happening now with critical caste theory. It is traveling faster than anything you can imagine. It is in all these private colleges in India. It is in the, uh, the NCRT books have put some of that in. The new national education policy 2020, I'm sorry to tell you, while it has some very good things in it, it brings in liberal arts without bringing in Vedic liberal arts. It brings in Harvard liberal arts. It's bringing in liberal arts, bringing people from here as the professors, most of the uh, liberal arts that has come into IIT and uh, Indian Institute of Management, they all brought in liberal arts. If you look at who are the actual professors, they're all this kind of stuff, uh, American uh, progressive left, ultra left, Hindu phobic, breaking India type people, the, pe the kind of people, the gentlemen there described. So this invasion of India has happened already. Now regarding counter narrative, Chapter six of this book, which is the largest chapter and about 100 pages, is a counter-narrative. It is a counter-narrative. It takes on every single point that they have made 
and it uh, goes, so chapters one, two, three, four, five, build the case from their side, a purva paksha of who these people are, what they're saying. And then chapter six gives a whole response to that, a counter narrative written very plain English. And we're going to make a separate book out of, out of it in Hindi. And then of course we move on to what, how they're taking their narrative into Harvard and uh, Indian billionaires and bringing it to India and all that. But chapter six, if you were to read, if you're interested in knowing our response, then that's a chapter to read. Rajivji, thank you for coming here and uh, thanks for everything you do. Uh, we are very grateful to everything you do and very proud of you also. So uh, just one comment slash question. Uh, you know, at a, do you agree that at a, at a very big picture level, it is a war between the globalist and the nationalist and for the globalist to win, in order to defeat the nationalist, they must weaken the nations all around the world. So the last thing you had said was just like there are snakes in Ganga, there are snakes in Charles River, and there are snakes in uh, European rivers also, I'm sure. So my question is, what are the similarities and what are the differences between these snakes? Or are, are they one and the same people and they can jump from one river to another as long as they get to destroy one nation or the next nation? Yeah, in fact, in Ontario, in Toronto, I told them that there are snakes in Lake Ontario. And we, we talked about some of those snakes. In fact, we named some of those snakes in the discussions in uh, Toronto last five days. So you are absolutely right. The globalists want to dismantle structures so that there is chaos and the individual is left in disarray, psychologically lost and uh, confused and vulnerable. And these vulnerable individuals are then able, they're able to reconstitute society in the, in the new image, which I have described in the conclusion chapter. The conclusion chapter tells me where things are headed if things are left as they are, where things are headed very rapidly by 2030. That's my feeling. And the World Economic Forum has actually gone public saying they want to promote it. And there are people in the artificial intelligence space who are and in the space of putting implants in brains. Elon Musk is not the only one. There are many. The Chinese are in it. Uh, there are people into manipulating social media. So I think we are headed towards a digital caste system. And we are headed towards a global oligarchy. Not just Russian oligarchs, but their global oligarchy. And a devaluation of humanity and human beings because AI will take over a lot of jobs and people need to be managed as morons, happy morons, because then otherwise they will be creating a ruckus and a violence. And to keep them happy, they have to be sedated into a sense of everything is good and all that, and maybe they live in the metaverse and have uh, a good life in the metaverse, okay? So all of this is not conspiracy theory. Klaus Schwab, head of the World Economic Forum, wrote the Great Reset, in which he said, that the pandemic is a good opportunity for us to reset people's expectations, concept of private property, concept of privacy, individuality, all of that we can now hijack because people are willing, they're so scared that they'll do anything to protect their life. So, uh, on, so why, why, and what, why would, let me ask you this question I've answered in this book, but let me ask, why would the 100 billionaire worth people the ten people who are worth tens of billions, who made their money in capitalism, why would they support the ultra-left wokists 
as they do you know, on the social media, why would they support the people who would undermine capitalism? This is answered in the conclusion section. They support them as useful idiots. Useful idiots means that you guys destroy everybody, but I'll survive because I'm stronger than the rest, and then I can take over. So you are useful idiots because you are, in, in a sense, suicide bombers, like suicide bombers. So the wokists are useful idiots for the future oligarchs. That's my thesis. Uh, it's an honor to be a part of this occasion. Uh, I just want to thank you, Rajivji, for your uh, constant effort uh, to preserve the image of India and uh, to, to shed the light on the truth. Um, uh, as, as, as the India also becomes an economic power in this world. Thank you. Uh, I would request Rajivji to please give this proclamation for Hindu Heritage Month to Abhaji. Thank this you. is the proclamation from Massachusetts. We have another one from the state of Rhode Island that we uh, would like to give to Kaushik Patelji. Kaushik ji. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. We would like to appreciate Amudrashi School of Dance here. They have won three Guinness World Record in Bharat Natyam, prestigious Natya Prasanna Awards, Power Global Award for Dance 2022, appreciation from Governor Mr. Charlie Baker. Thank you for all your hard work. They have continuously won five times prestigious championship of New England in Bharat Natyam competition. That's a lot of work, there's a lot of discipline, there's a lot of years of hard works. We would really like to appreciate you. Thank you so much. Guys, can we show a little more energy? These are little kids.
They've been waiting all night for this moment. Can we show a little more appreciation? You guys look beautiful. Anand bhai, please join us. <coughs> please join us. It gives us immense pleasure. Honorable Balram Singh ji, please join us. Abhay ji, please join us. Sandeep bhai, please join us. Yes. And Girish ji, uh, please honor Rajiv ji with shawl. All these shawls are sponsored by Mohikas, Archana and Girishji. Please give a big round of applause to Mohikas group for sponsoring these shawls for all our elder members. I would request all FIA team members to please join us. And now from this today's event, we got another, another our one of one of another very accomplished uh, mentor and uh, whatever you say, whatever the word, our guardian in form of Sri Rajiv Malhotra ji. So I would say all the FIU volunteers please present this momento to him.